Welcome to the CIO Agenda. I'm Sandy Rattray, CIO at Man Group. I'm joined today by Peter Van Doyvert, Managing Director of Multi-Asset Solutions. And in this episode, we'll be talking about the utility of bonds in crises, present and future, the scalability, reliability and risks of possible bond replacements, such as gold and currencies, and portfolio construction approaches, embracing bonds and perhaps leverage too. So Peter, let's kick off at a, at a high level it would appear that using expensive bonds to diversify a portfolio of what are today expensive risky assets, particularly stocks, might be a problem. So what are you hearing from investors on bonds? Yeah, it's not just that bonds are potentially expensive as a diversifier. In an unlevered portfolio, they don't really deliver a lot of returns, certainly not enough return to deliver plan return objectives. You know, in the U.S., we have some plans that have return targets of 7 to 8%. So I, I think there's a problem on that side. But there's also quite a bit of uncertainty with respect to how much return we can expect from bonds in the next crisis. So investors are asking themselves with yields between negative 50 basis points and 1% globally, will we see the same kind of crisis return you know, in the next big market event? And that's before we even consider whether bond equity correlation regimes are going to stay the same. Will they stay negatively correlated and will bonds actually be diversifying? But for the most part, for our larger investors, bonds are still the only scalable and reliable diversifier. So they're left in, in some ways without a choice. Let's just dig into that a, a little bit more and, and uh, the, the theme of bonds as a crisis diversifier. Clearly, that's worked pretty well for the last 20 years, but has it worked over the long term? Well, I, I think in the very long term, you, you certainly have some arguments against it. So if we look back in the 70s, there were times where bond and equity correlations were positive. Both assets would sell off severely and, and portfolios were impaired. But certainly over the last 30 years, you know, I, I think it looks different. And, and so we've done some analyses where we look at previous crises like the dot-com bubble, the global financial crisis, Asia crisis, and even COVID. And what we see are moves in rates between 150 and 350 basis points lower in those events. So if we look at where yields are today, there is actually still some room for a crisis going forward and, and to generate some potential return. So just generically starting at 100, 115 basis points where we see 10-year uh, yields in the US, if we thought yields could go to minus 50 basis points, then bonds actually can generate return in a crisis. Now, I think the counter argument is that Powell has said he's opposed to negative rates, but the Fed was opposed to buying IG credit and opposed to buying high yield. So given they've already done those things, I think it's probably reasonable to expect that we have room for a crisis uh, and maybe on the order of 10, 15% return, keeping in mind that, you know, as rates have gone lower, duration in bond portfolios has increased. So you have actually more sensitivity to uh, moves lower in rates. Now, I'm a pretty strong believer that you can't predict what the next crisis is going to be. I think very few people predicted, or almost nobody predicted the pandemic and very few people uh, predicted the uh, global financial crisis of 2008. Uh, some people may have got the tech bubble uh, collapse right, but very few got the timing right. That all said, one of the risks that people are talking about today as an emerging risk is more inflation in developed countries. And um, so maybe you can take us through it a little bit. If the next crisis was triggered by an unexpected rise in inflation, then would bonds help? Yeah, I think then 
probably you're going to have an issue, right? And, and, and it might have to do with how strongly you believe that the Fed is going to control the yield curve. So some inflation seems to be okay for the Fed. They're happy to run it, let it run somewhat hot. And so the first case scenario of is the inflation, you know, inflation we're seeing within the range of what the Fed feels is acceptable, then in theory, bonds should behave relatively fine. And, and more importantly, your risk asset portfolio is supposed to be behaving well. So if inflation is coming from fiscal stimulus or if inflation's kind of in the realm of good, strong economic growth, it's not that bonds are working. It's that the portfolio construction of bond equities is working. Now, where I think everyone is afraid of is the sort of you know unexpected bad outcomes where the Fed let it run too hot or you know, we see fiscal stimulus, be, you know, some are saying beyond what's reasonable, and we start getting kind of big moves in rates. At that point, I think you, you certainly have an issue. On the first hand, bonds will, will clearly be selling off on that basis. And secondarily, I think largely people expect other asset classes to move. You know, while Powell said that he doesn't think there's this tighter relationship between asset values and low rates, I think you'd you'd be challenged to find a portfolio manager who doesn't think right now that asset values are high because rates are low. So what that really means is in those kind of outcomes, either you need some other form of diversifier or you need some kind of risk control to deal with the fact that equities and, and other assets could sell off aggressively with bonds and look a little bit more like the 70s. And that 70s outcome is probably the one that scares us the most and the one that you need to start controlling for the most. Yeah, well, look, my accent gives away that I live in a country where the equity market fell uh, just over 80% in 12 months uh, in the 1970s. And I think at the time, people thought that was a developed market. And so uh, clearly, in a 1970s-like environment, we could get some very nasty shocks indeed that I don't think people have uh, very much recollection of. Let's move back, though, to bonds and uh, talk about this asymmetry in yields. Many people think that yields can't go much below zero. We've obviously had guidance from the Fed in terms of uh, uh, determination for yields not to go uh, below zero. So how asymmetric do you think the risk reward is uh, right now in bonds? Yeah, I think it feels asymmetric when you look at it because you say, well, yields were 5% X years ago. And so I think the way to think about it more is how the Fed is more or less controlling the volatility of the yield curve. And you can see that in the move index, which is basically a VIX for fixed income. It's close to its lows, which suggests that anticipated rate moves are pretty benign, right? So there's something, it feels odd on an efficient market basis to say that, you know, rates can go to zero or 500. And, and how does that jive with that? Well, in a universe where expected moves are very low based on volatility, you know, we shouldn't see huge move in rates, maybe plus or minus 50 basis points. And that's kind of what the yield curve and, and volatility implies. So we're a bad COVID variant away from, you know, maybe 70 basis points in yields again, and maybe a high CPI print from say 150, 160. So I think that's what the vol index and the Fed are sort of telegraphing. And, and if you believe the Fed is kind of implicitly or explicitly controlling the yield curve, then you're, you're safe within that. But any break outside of that would be a large shock. So I, I would kind of say the asymmetry becomes a real issue if we see a break outside of what's predicted by vol or a break outside of what the Fed is kind of implicitly controlling. And in that universe, that's when I think we, we need to be able to be very reactive. And I, I don't necessarily think it would be a huge shock 
that we expect rates to go 125, 250 in a day. But once you start reaching the outer bound of you know the 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 distribution of expectations on vol, that's when you start thinking, okay, what is you know what could tip this in, in a real negative way for my portfolio. And Peter, maybe you could also comment on we've talked a lot about bonds in terms of yields, but in the end, of course, we really care about the price movements or the total total return movements on bonds. So as yields have come down, the duration of, bond, of bonds has gone up a lot. And um, and so the sensitivity, therefore, to yield changes has moved uh, quite a bit. So when you're talking in yield terms and changes in yields, is that quite fair given where we are um, at current yields? No, I, I think you probably should be focusing on price returns. I think Oftentimes we become a little lazy as investors and, and just want to say, well, if it moves 100 bips, this happens or that happens. And, and that's kind of a context that we're all accustomed to speaking on. Um, the good news is that higher yield portfolio is, is more protective in a universe where our things are shocked to the downside in terms of rates. So that's a helpful thing, right? We don't need 350 basis points to replicate, say, the Asia crisis in terms of what we get from bond returns. The, the bad news, of course, is that you know it works both ways. And, and so you have that potential where if you're not doing something to control what bonds are doing to your portfolio, then you know you, you may see some larger price shocks than you expect to the upside. So I, I think What's important is to make sure that in the context of everything that's going on in your portfolio, that these moves aren't surprising or overly distressing to the portfolio, i.e. bonds are selling off, but equities and other risk assets are doing well. That's well within the boundaries of what you expect to have happen. And vice versa, if bonds are you know, providing that crisis protection that they historically have, hopefully they're doing that in a degree that uh, is commensurate to what your other risk assets are, are experiencing. Okay, let's move on and talk a little bit about first um, use of leverage on bonds, and then I'd like to talk about assets outside of bonds as uh, diversifiers or protection assets. But let, let's start with leverage. So there are some that argue that, well, you got uh, an asset which looks as though it will probably remain a protection asset, absent very high inflation, but let's say very high inflation doesn't happen. So absent high inflation, then bonds are a uh, likely to remain a good diversifier, but because of where we are, you might need some additional leverage um, on the fixed income portfolio to really uh, get the impact of bonds uh, to be as large as you might want in a sort of crisis or protection-like scenario. What's your response to that? Yeah, I, I think if we start off with the baseline, that the easy excuse is say the Fed is controlling the yield curve, so. I have not a free option, but I have a controlled option in the sense that the Fed isn't going to let bonds go. So even if we don't assume that, if by and large vol indices and other expectations around you know, bond returns are relatively muted in terms of their extremes, then we could argue we need to own more. But we don't need to own more just because you know, the amount of crisis protection that bonds provided in the past is probably a bit more than they provide today. We might need to own more simply because the returns from bonds are very low. So taking a step back, what does that look like? Well, if we're expecting sort of 10 to 15% return from bonds, you know, in the next crisis, and historically we've gotten higher, maybe 20 to 35%, that argues for potentially using more bonds. Secondly, you might argue for using more bonds because they used to yield 3%. So at 3% yield, well, 
you know, we can't get there on a, on a 1% treasury rate. Now, the good news is if we want to add more bonds for yield, right now borrowing is, is zero cost, right? So uh, on that basis, using bonds for leverage accomplishes two things. First, it gives us the extra crisis protection. And second, because the yield curve, you know, basically is upward sloping, we earn extra yield for the portfolio and effectively generate return that we need. So it gives us two ways to, 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 to solve the problem. But if we're going to do that, we certainly need to attach some risk controls on how we're going to go about taking that leverage. Okay, and maybe we'll come back to that later on. I think for many people hearing that you need more leverage to get the protection characteristics to be effective enough would feel like a very puzzling conclusion. But let's let's come back to that and just talk about other assets now as protection assets for portfolios with risk assets. And so there's been a lot of talk this year of people using gold more in their portfolios. And then, of course, Bitcoin as the new gold or the potential new gold has come up as a suggestion. And then for US investors, the idea that you take some exposures to non-dollar FX exposure. So let's talk about each one of those three. Sure. So we did a webinar on gold um, and, and we, we're skeptical in, in a sense because gold has been so highly correlated to bonds over the years that a thing that's correlated to bonds doesn't feel like a great bond replacement to begin with. Now, I, I think some people argue a lot on inflation and, and Campbell Harvey has a good paper that you can go to and look, you know, is gold a bit expensive relative to inflation? It certainly appears that way, right? But as a, as a crisis protection device, we've seen some pretty bad outcomes with gold where equities are down a lot. And at the same time, gold has been down, you know, in 2008, gold was down 15% at the lows. So the thing about crisis type assets to me is they're supposed to either diversify your portfolio provide liquidity or stabilize your portfolio, something along those lines. And if they don't do that, then they're not particularly comfortable to replace bonds and scale. So I kind of put gold in that bucket. The FX side is a little bit different. You know, the US, US investors have often used yen and then potential short positions via tail hedge funds in things like Aussie dollar and Canadian. That's worked pretty well in deflationary regimes where you, know, you need the crisis protection. Our last few crises, it doesn't look like the yen did very much in 2018 or even in COVID. So it's a bit less stable uh, as a diversifier. And certainly for our investors, you know, domiciled in Australia, Europe and, and Canada, the idea of US dollar supremacy is also potentially at issue, right? The US is borrowing a lot. The fiscal situation is getting somewhat worse. And so I think on the one hand, it's always been a stable asset and a stable way to protect your portfolio to stay long of the US dollar when you invest in US assets, as opposed to hedging them back to your local currency. But in an inflationary regime, some of our Aussie investors are seeing the Aussie dollar you know, strengthen a lot with commodities. So it's easy to say you should hedge, but when you're effectively you know, net short your, the Aussie dollar and it's jumping a lot, it stops being a hedge. It's just being a, a very high cost and, and a one delta cost or 100% exposure cost to your portfolio. So in tail hedge funds, you're kind of happy to do those things. You're maybe a little less happy to do that directly in currencies. Probably the most interesting one that everyone is talking about as, as a construction device are, are cryptos, uh, specifically Bitcoin, given that's the biggest one. You know, my net reaction to that is it's pretty hard to, to use in any kind of scale something you know, that has such a high pro vol profile, one, 
And two, we saw it behave terribly in a crash, right? If anything, it feels more correlated to risk assets than anything else and going up kind of in, in tandem with things like electric vehicles and, and video game companies and that sort of thing. So on that issue, I think that's it's a pretty tough one to use other than you know, regret aversion so that you don't feel like you missed out on something. Um, you know, maybe it's better as an inflation type device, but again, the movements are so big. And I think you, you've in the past rightly brought up things like ESG and, and that, you know, given the way most institutional investors are going, this doesn't feel like the best asset on an ESG basis. No, that's for certain. It might even feel like one of the worst assets on an ESG basis. Well, I think we'll see on uh, crypto, clearly the argument that production is limited and that uh, just like a fiat currency, it takes a general sort of acceptance and belief um, for Bitcoin and the other cryptos to take root um, is pretty well uh, sort of, I suppose, understood and broadcast. Perhaps I think less people remember just how badly these uh, the, the digital assets did um, in the last crisis. And, and of course, it's one thing for your protection asset to not protect you. It's even worse if your protection asset actually damages you. Uh, let's move on. Yeah. Yeah. Go ahead. Sorry, I was just jumping with one one other thought. The the argument that you know the crypto universe is constrained; it's got a limited size. That's after all the same argument that everyone used and has been using to buy gold for the last thirty years. So it's a similar argument, and and in many ways, I think your average gold bug might, quite frankly, be becoming a, a a crypto bug as well. And that keeps it a bit of a niche thing when you have those kind of arguments as reason to own something in your portfolio. So, yeah, absolutely. So let's uh, let's talk about what other things you uh, can do. So um, people often talk about trend following as a protection strategy. Um, it's obviously something we both have a lot of experience of. But then there are also uh, risk premium with uh, defensive uh, characteristics. Um, and some other assets that might protect against particular scenarios. So let's have a quick uh, uh, run through on your views on each of those. Yeah, so I, I guess the cynical investor listening will say, well, man's going to recommend trend as, as a clear thing to use. Um, but what I would say for trend is it is something that helps you do things you wouldn't normally do in your portfolio kind of, you know, on an ad hoc basis. So, you know, if we look at the 2011 sovereign crisis, as, a, as an aftershock to the global financial crisis. I'm curious what the aftershocks to COVID will be. We, we talk a lot about you know, the, the potential for inflation and the bond sell-off. I don't know how many investors are gonna go out and start shorting bonds as a thing to do as an investment category, given how that affects your portfolio. But trend is something that will do that. Historically, that's not been great for trend. It doesn't really make any money shorting bonds for the last 20 years. But with carry close to zero, it changes the construct, right? You're, you're, it's, it's a bit of a cost of option how much you have to pay for carry and short bonds, but the cost of that option is quite low. And the same goes for FX and commodities. All these things that we worry about in inflation regimes, it's hard to go out and buy commodities on your own as an inflation hedge. You know, just strictly speaking for investors, because we've seen just horrible deflation outcomes. And 2007 is that perfect ex example where they all went vertically upward and then vertically downward. Handing some of these things off to trend helps with a lot of these problems, right? Helps with potentially getting long an asset that's inflation protective. It helps to deal with that U.S. dollar supremacy. You know, are you using the U.S. dollar to protect your portfolio? Well, let's ameliorate that when we see clear trends in some of these riskier currencies that suggest being long them. So I think there's room for those defensive strategies. 
one, because they're going to do tactical trades in environments that we can't really predict well. And then two, they just happen to have very good risk you know, attributes in, in crises, right? We've seen trend get short equities and long growth bonds during you know, other crisis periods, and, and that generates extra return. So I think in those senses, there's some real place in, in portfolio construction for trend, mostly because it's doing things in other asset classes that are either difficult for us to do or even non-intuitive. And on the defensive risk premium side, I think we have a scale issue. You know, quality is clearly one of those factors that people like in a, in a crisis. You know, high quality stocks do well, low quality stocks do poorly. So it's fairly intuitive. And in, in every crisis, it's generally borne that out. The question is, can you scale that to the size that it can be incredibly useful in your portfolio? Probably not, but it certainly fits as a niche type thing that you can do. Okay, well, let's come back to th some of those strategies and just talk uh, briefly about the 60-40 portfolio, that's 60% equities, 40% bonds portfolio that is so typical for institutional investors. If bonds aren't offering quite the same level of protection that they used to offer, does that mean that the characteristics of 60-40 have changed a lot? Yeah, I, I think we should expect the characteristics to change. I mean, uh, on the first side, you asked about risk, but I'll start with return. You know, when bonds are yielding 5%, you certainly get to make a lot more in your 60-40 portfolio. In other words, 40% to 5%, you, you generate return. You know, at 1%, you don't get there. So on the return side, if the old expectation was 5 to 6% return, maybe the new expectation is 3 4% return on 60-40. On the risk side, I think we have a couple things. You know, we know the max drawdown is kind of 30 35% in the past, depending how, you know, how you're allocated. If bonds are going to contribute less in the next crisis, maybe we're adding three or 4% to that worst case scenario. So for the next crisis, I may be somewhat naively assuming that bonds will behave similarly and, and generate a decent amount of return, if not total return that we're accustomed to, right? So on that basis, the crash risk looks a little worse. Maybe the vol is somewhat consistent because after all, at a very low yield and very low vol, bond side of your 60-40 is still keeping your portfolio well diversified. It almost behaves like cash in that sense. So the volatility expectations of your 60-40 are, are somewhat the same, if even a touch lower. So that's not changing. But you know, in the end, all investors probably should care about is how much can I make and what's my max loss? And so in that sense, I, I think you're right. There, there's a potential issue that the max drawdowns look worse. And all of that is assuming that everything lives in the same correlation universe of when equities go down, bonds go up. That other universe where bonds and equities become correlated, well, then we have a, a totally different max drawdown construct. Okay, well, we may come back to that, but what you're really saying then is the 60-40 portfolio has less protection than it used to have because bonds have less room to rally because of where yields are and is going to deliver less return as well because of where bonds are. So both sides of that make it look relatively less attractive than it used to be. So what should the 60-40 investor do? Well, that's a, not an easy question to give you an answer in two minutes. I, I think there are two paths. The first path is to change how you're using bonds. And again, so many investors look at this as the only scalable diversifier. And I think I'm probably in that same bucket based on the comments I've just made on some of the other asset classes. That suggests that using more bonds in your portfolio is, is worth doing. 
and you know you enhance the yield, you add some more crisis protection, and you bring yourself a little bit closer to what 6040 has done historically, while keeping that equity risk on, which is pretty important. What we talked about before is you need some risk control around that, and so if you're going to use more bonds, probably the most important risk control is any kind of cross-asset, you know, correlation pickup where we see bonds and equities selling off together, you need to be very aggressively focused on it. The flip side is you could also do what investors are kind of already doing, whether they admit it or not, which is just get rid of treasuries altogether. And so investors have already started moving to investment grade credit. Many of those moved on to high yield and private credit. So I don't know that the 60-40 really exists other than a nomenclature, right? People own 60% equities, but that 40 bucket has become really interesting for a lot of different investors. Some have replaced it with hedge funds. Some have put in private credit, real estate credit, you know, a lot of different forms of lending, a lot of it which looks riskier. So given you're slowly moving that way, and increasing your crash profile by doing it, maybe you're supposed to say, you know what, I'm just going to get rid of this concept of 40% allocation to bonds and say, I'm just going to have an allocation to all risky assets, maybe 60% equities and 40% credit assets. And if I'm going to do that, I'm once again moving down that, that max drawdown problem. So I still need risk control. So either way to me, it looks like I can make decisions that get me back to the return objectives, but any decision path I take, is increasing my potential drawdowns and, and potential adverse outcomes in, in regimes where things are going somewhat unexpectedly. So, so let's pick up on that point of uh, the correlation between equities and bonds. We know it's really hard to forecast correlations. We know that for the last 20 years, when equities did badly, bonds were quite a reliable protector um, and did well in those periods. And we know that for most periods before the last 20 years, the opposite happened, that when equities uh, did badly, then unfortunately bonds did badly at the same time. So what should we do as investors about, about thinking about this equity bond correlation variable? We know it's important to the riskiness of our portfolios and we know it's hard to forecast. So how should we respond in the way that we build and risk manage our portfolios? Yeah, I, I think that's a great question for you know the last 20, 25 years the static 60-40 portfolio has been working pretty well for everyone. It hasn't required a lot of intervention. It's kind of a random set of numbers we've come up with. And given it's working, no one's planning to change that. Well, given where yields are now, I think we just have to assume that we're going to have to be more dynamic about how we manage these sorts of risks. So on the correlation side, it's probably not going to be enough to say, I'll wait to see how bonds and equities do over the next quarter, because in a quarter's time, we could see a breakdown of correlation. Your portfolio could be damaged severely fairly quickly. And, and, and I think we've seen the speed of some of our market sell-offs, especially during COVID, pick up you know, quite a bit. And so I think we need to be much more dynamic about how we evaluate correlations. Certainly for our internal funds, we're doing intraday testing. We're, we're looking at tick data. We're measuring you know, changes in correlation throughout the day. Because if we don't get ahead of it, you know, by the time the broader market has picked up on it, it's likely to be too late for your portfolio. So whether you're using tick data, you know, high frequency data, using some kind of sensitivity to intraday equity bond correlations, you may not be in a great position to manage that. And so at this point, I think what people need to start doing is making these sort of you know, risk controls central to how you run your portfolios. It isn't enough to do an ad hoc tail hedge strategy or an ad hoc futures hedge from time to time. I think you really need to take 
all of the things we're observing, volatility and correlation, and build it into kind of your core allocation process and potentially build it into a risk reducing, you know, a systematic risk reducing approach that, you know, watches these things and, and moves your portfolio accordingly. Because being able to do those sorts of things lets you take more risk and lets you feel comfortable with the risk that you actually have. Fantastic. Well, thank you, Peter. Uh, just to summarize, I think we're saying that bonds will most likely continue to protect portfolios, but that given where yields are, uh, they're not likely to do it in the same way as they did historically. And so investors need to think more broadly and not just rely on the US Treasuries in particular part of their portfolios to provide protection. So we'll finish up there. Uh, thank you again, uh, Peter, for joining us and to our audience for listening. This session is available on the Mann Institute, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and of course, wherever else you download your podcasts. Goodbye.